0: Hey guys, this is Tori from Cruel and Unusual, the podcast. My co-host Katie and I drop brand new episodes every single Thursday about all things true crime, horror, and conspiracies. Each week, we pick a different theme like disappearances, unsolved cases, or killer couples, and we tell you all about the crimes that were committed. On every other Tuesday, we take your stories that you write into us and read them for our mini episodes. Come hang out with us and let us know that the Forensic Miles podcast sent you. to Forensic Miles. If you're a new listener, we are so excited that you're here.
1: We're pumped to have you guys listening and uh, we hope you continue to listen on and strap yourselves in.
0: Forensic Miles is a unofficial companion podcast to the cult TV show, Forensic Files. You've seen the show, you know the crime, but is there more to the story?
1: There always is. (laughs)
0: Today, we're going to be covering the Forensic Files episode, Fresh Air, which is the story of the murder of Linnea Gran. So I guess we should get right into it. Nola thinks we should. Let's do it. (laughs) Oh, one more thing. Our fur babies, or otherwise known as Forensic File fans, are contributing to this episode. In the city of Billings Park, which is in Superior, Wisconsin, there was a small grocery store that had been around for generations. It was called Les's Grocery Store and was owned and operated by the Graham family. Linnea Graham and her four children lived next door to the grocery store. At the time, she was a single mother. She had recently gone through a you know an extremely bitter divorce. She had four children, and their names were Richard, Linnea, and Roger. For some reason, I couldn't find the name of the fourth child, which makes me think that there are only three, but I've seen both, so I'm not 100% sure. Anyway, Billings Park was, you know, known as a very quiet city. They weren't really used to big city crime. In the Forensic Files episode, Linnea's son, Richard, described her as a very loving and very sweet woman. He even, you know, he even brought up this story about how he was playing outside one day with a hose and his mother had come out all dressed beautifully with a beautiful dress and her makeup done and her hair done. And he accidentally sprayed her with the hose. Oh no. But instead of getting really angry at him, she took the hose, started spraying him and they started playing together in the mud, which sounds great.
1: Yeah. I I definitely think I would have lost out on some TV time that night. Had I done something similar to that? Yeah. I would agree with you there.
0: (laughs) In 1986, all of Linnea's children had grown up and moved out of the house, except for Roger, who was only 17 at the time. He was, I think, about a month away from his 18th birthday. On the night of August 9th, 1989, Linnea was working at the store, and Roger had headed out to the county fair to spend time with his friends and just hang out. At around 2 a.m., he returned home and noticed that his mother wasn't there. So he was kind of worried, but he just assumed that she was at the grocery store. So he went over to the grocery store to check on her. And what he found was an insanely brutal crime scene. Linnea had been brutally murdered and was laying face down on the floor. Roger called 911, and when they arrived, he was found sitting outside the store waiting for them. Roger was visibly in tears, visibly upset, and when the officer went inside the store, it is said that another officer actually had to hold Roger back from trying to get into the store.
1: Nice.
0: So it was a pretty traumatic um, evening, and this was a crime scene that was worse than any that any any of these officer officers had ever seen. The crime scene was particularly violent. There was blood absolutely everywhere, on the floor, on the ceiling, everywhere. District Attorney Dan Blank later said, The crime scene was probably as horrific and gruesome as any of the investigations I've come across.
1: One thing- Especially the fact that it was his own mother.
0: Yeah, and he was the one that found it. I couldn't Um, even imagine how traumatizing that would be. Yeah. There was obviously a good amount of evidence when it came to this crime scene, especially blood evidence. But one thing that the investigators could not find was motive. No money was stolen from the register or her purse, which was also there. There was no sexual assault or any indication that that was the motive. Her clothes were perfectly in place. Nothing was messed up at all. After the autopsy, they found Linnea had been beaten to death with a blunt object and had been hit between 15 and 30 times.
1: Well, Definitely personal, though.
0: Absolutely. And because of that, and because it was so brutal, investigators assumed that the murderer would be somebody close to Linnea, as a random killer most likely wouldn't have killed with such brutality. Investigators considered that, you know, the person that killed her could have been somebody who was trying to rob this store, but had backed out or gotten scared or somebody had gone, you know, walked past the store and he thought they were going to see him. Um, But, you know, this kind of fell a little bit flat because of the brutality of it. As they looked into Linnea's life a little bit, they found out that she really didn't have any enemies other than her ex-husband, who, you know, they had just finished this really horrible divorce together um they talked to her children who were grown at the time and they like i said before just said that she was a really nice kind woman and didn't have any enemies that they were aware of her ex-husband was considered a suspect for a short time however at the time of the murder he was in ohio and had many witnesses who who were putting him there so he was quickly taken off the list Investigators thought that the county fair might have contributed to the murder. Um, They knew that the fair brought people into the town and they knew that crime rates usually went up a bit. Um, So they, you know, kind of thought this might have something to do with it. Um, But they still weren't really sure. They started to find more evidence on the scene and they found shoe prints. After an analysis of the analysis of the shoe prints, they discovered that they actually matched Roger's shoes, which didn't really seem so out of the question or suspicious as he was the one that had found his mother. He
1: walked in on it.
0: Exactly. And he had an alibi for the time of the murders. Um, He was at the country or the county fair with his friends. He did admit though, that he didn't remember much from that night. He said that he had been drinking and doing a lot of drugs And he could only really remember finding his mother's body, which honestly is probably true. If you're doing drugs and you're drunk, you're definitely going to remember something like this, though. Yeah. Nevertheless, investigators did end up searching the home that Linnea and Roger shared, and they found something. A possible murder weapon. A hammer that was in the drawer next to the kitchen sink. So it was in a drawer. The drawer was closed. It was in Linnea's home. Some of um, some items of Roger's clothing were also taken for testing, including a jean jacket, a pair of jeans, and some shoes. It's interesting because in the article I read, he isn't named because he's only 17, you know, because he would only turn 18 next month. They just mentioned that he was an underage kid who was brought in for questioning, um, and he was ultimately held.
1: In doesn't, custody. Doesn't look good for Roger right now.
0: Not great. Although they felt that the hammer could, could possibly be and was most likely the murder weapon, they were unable to find any traces of blood on either the handle or the head of the hammer. They moved on to Roger's clothing, and they found blood on his clothes. But he had already told them that he had found his mother. He had held her, her head in his arms and he had tried to revive her. So it wasn't really out of the question for there to be blood, blood on, on him. his clothes either. Roger did end up being a suspect. However, he was taken into and he was taken into custody. He was held for three days. And on August 12th, he was released and went to live with a relative. Ultimately he wasn't charged because it was considered that he had a solid out al- alibi By being at the fair. Um, So they tried to move on. Tried to find more suspects. Not too long after Linnea's death. In November of 1986. There was another murder. 180 miles away. In Eau Claire. uh, Wisconsin. A man named Dale Staup. Had been beaten to death. With what item do you think? A hammer. A hammer. And the murderer was actually caught.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Robin Warder, host of the true crime podcast, The Trail Went Cold. If you grew up watching the classic television show Unsolved Mysteries, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I profile a new unsolved murder or missing persons case and share all the baffling details. Afterward, I provide my own personal analysis. And theories about what might have happened. This is a show for true crime buffs who are fascinated by cold cases and love to discuss them and pick them apart in an attempt to figure out the truth. So be sure to check out our podcast to learn about some truly bizarre unsolved mysteries where the trail went cold.
0: hansen who was 19 at the time was arrested and confessed to the killing of dale but he denied anything to do with linnea's murder investigators felt like this had you know there had to be a connection it seemed too much of a coincidence to have two murders in the same general area carried out in the same general manner at the same period of time
1: was dale um also killed at like a convenience store gas station or something
0: he wasn't and we'll get into that but it turns out steve and roger knew each other
1: you can't make this stuff up
0: no they had mutual friends and had done drugs together in the past investigators suspected that the two might have had a disagreement about drugs and steve had lashed out by killing roger's mother Steve ended up having an alibi for the day that Linnea was murdered. He was in Eau Claire, and there was no possible way he could have been in Superior at that time. It was 180 miles away. So, you know, it wasn't like he could just pop over to Superior that uh, at that time. He was definitely in Eau Claire, and he had proof of that.
1: It's like a four-hour drive.
0: It, yeah. And when you start to compare the crime that Steve committed and the murder of Linnea – They don't really have much in common other than the fact that a hammer was used. Steve had met Dale at an adult uh, bookstore. Dale had invited Steve to his apartment to watch porn. Supposedly, Dale attempted to make sexual advances on Steve, and Steve was not feeling it. I guess Dale had asked him to tie him up, and Steve agreed. But once he had done that, he took Dale's car keys and tried to steal his car and leave Dale in the apartment tied up. When Dale realized what was going on, he started yelling and so you know to quiet him, Steve hit him over the head with the first thing that he could find, which ended up being a hammer. Dale uh, didn't even end up really dying from the hit to the head. He was actually suffocated and strangled. Um and then of course the head injuries did affect
1: played, played, they played played a part.
0: part. Yeah. yeah. So really when you look at it, it did end up being just a huge coincidence.
1: We see it all the time.
0: At this point, investigators had run out of suspects, and they were stuck in this case, and years started to pass. 20 years, in fact. The cold case was finally reopened by the Superior Police Department. We're now in 2004, and Forensic Files has improved in an amazing way. Although they had no witnesses, no suspect, no idea where to look, they felt that this case could be solved with forensics. They decided to re-examine the hammer that was found in the kitchen. A lot had changed from 1986, including microscopes and DNA. They now had an incredibly strong microscope and the ability to test very small samples of DNA. And they got lucky. They were able to find very small traces of blood on the hammer, and DNA testing was conducted. It matched Linnea, finally confirming the suspicion that the hammer was, in fact, the murder weapon. Hmm. They decided to test the jean jacket that had been taken from Roger's room at the time of the investigation. They found the blood spatter, which was not what they thought that they found. In 1986.
1: I guess technology gives you a new lens. In
0: 1986, they felt that there was blood on there, but they didn't make the connection that it was actually spatter. It was not drips, it was not smears, it was high-velocity spatter. After the DNA test, they found that this bud also belonged to Linnea.
1: So he had he was he was close.
0: He had to have been in the room within a couple of feet in order to have spatter like this on his jacket. They also found a smear on the inside of the jacket. I don't know if you all have jean jackets or I guess all jean jackets probably don't have this, but my jean jacket and the one that he had has a pocket on the inside of the jacket. And this is where they found this uh, the smear. What they believed happened is that After the murder, Roger had taken the hammer and slid it into the pocket that was on the inside of his jacket.
1: Hmm. to, like, hide it as he walked out. Exactly.
0: They concluded that he had either been the one to kill his mother or was very, very close to whoever had done so. On August 5th, 2005, they called Roger in for questioning and showed him the evidence. At this point, he's 38 years old. He has a family of his own, including two teenage children, which I think is very interesting. Yeah. He told them he couldn't remember much from that day, which is similar to what he had said 20 years before. actually happened. But instead of saying that he was absolutely innocent and not involved with the crime at all, Roger... Remained calm during questioning. They asked him to tell the story again, and it was a different story than the one he had originally told. Roger said that he and his mother had had an argument the night of the murder before he had gone to the fair. It had been about money. She refused to give him any money, and she also told him that he wasn't allowed to use the family car. Investigators assume it was because Linnea knew that he was going to use the money for drugs and that he was planning on doing drugs at the fair with his friends. He told them that when he had left, his mother was, quote unquote, not dead. He didn't say she wasn't hurt or she was fine. He specifically said that she was not dead, indicating that he knew something was wrong with her with her before he had left.
1: Yeah, that's a uh, um, strange phrasing to use.
0: I agree. And so did the investigators. Investigators believed that Roger had gotten angry at his mother. He went back to the home, grabbed the hammer, and killed her. After cleaning up, he headed to the the county fair to meet up with his friends and establish an alibi. At 2 a.m., he returned home, called 911 to report the murder. His brother, Robert who was the one that was interviewed in the forensic files episode claimed that Roger was not in his right mind. And if he hadn't been under the influence of drugs and alcohol, he wouldn't have ever done anything like this in the 20 years between the murder and Roger being caught, Roger had had a difficult life. He had had a divorce. He was in rehab. He was in psych wards, you name it. He was really struggling during that time, but believe it or not, Over the entire 20 years, he never moved out of Superior. Hmm. He was always there. The district attorney sought the maximum punishment in this case, 20 years in prison. He said, quote, for 20 years, Mr. Grant has continued to lie and has failed to come clean. However, Roger's attorney, Patrick O'Neill, who had actually represented him him when he was 17, um had something else to say. He said that Roger had quote suffered enough by living with the guilt and the community's suspicion for 20 years. Roger's sister Linnea also agreed with this saying quote, his debt has already been paid in full. Let us for once and for all put the, put to rest the abuse and unresolved anger in the grand family.
1: So I don't know if I'd be feeling that same way.
0: Exactly, and the overall feeling of the of you know his sister and um, his attorney was that he had never run from this crime. He was always in superior. He was always there to be questioned, arrested, anything like that. He had never run, but that doesn't mean that he's not guilty. Yeah, many things were considered in this case. Um, the fact that Roger had been seventeen years old when he had committed the murder, that he was drunk and high on supposedly LSD. And the fact that he had been sexually, or allegedly sexually abused by his mother. So I've only seen that in a couple places. I didn't get any more information on, on that. Um, so I'm not, I'm not really sure about the inf- more information on that. During his sentencing, Roger made a statement. He said, "Quote: I need to say I'm sorry. If I could go back and change this, I would." Roger ended up pleading guilty to second-degree murder so that he wouldn't have to put his family through a trial, and he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. He would be eligible for parole in a quarter of his sentence, which would be a little bit more than three years. Hmm. This case is a great reminder that if you collect the evidence the right and legal way, just because you can't solve it now doesn't mean you can't solve it at all and you'll never be able to solve it. And this is something that... The producers of Forensic Files were really kind of excited about when they filmed this episode. In a quote by Chip Selby, who was the producer of this specific episode, he said, quote, This case is kind of a lesson that if a crime takes place now, it can't be solved right a bit right away. You still hold on to that evidence. Who knows? 10, 15, 20 years later, there may be new technology. You can revisit it and solve the case.
1: That's crazy.
0: Yeah, it it is crazy that they were able to do that after 20 years and they had collected and saved the evidence in a way that it preserved it.
1: It's amazing that they were able to keep it all and like you just said that it was actually preserved so they could use it again mm-hmm. once there was like a more advanced technology for it. Exactly.
0: I couldn't really find any information on whether or not he's been released yet. I'm assuming that he hasn't been and is still in jail, although he might be getting out this year because 2020 would have been 15 years. So his full sentence. Unfortunately, Robert Gran, the brother who was interviewed in the Forensic Files episode, passed away in 2016. I also noticed that that Les's grocery store has also been permanently closed. So all around... You know, a really sad story. It's
1: always sad when it's a family affair like that.
0: Yeah, because they really lost so much of their family that night. Yeah. Well, we hope that you enjoyed this episode. And we would love if you would give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. um, And go follow our Instagram and Twitter at Forensic Miles, Miles with a Y.
1: We'll see you guys later. Hope you enjoyed.
0: Yeah, we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Hi, my name is Joe, and I want to tell you about my podcast that I host called Still Unknown, an unsolved true crime podcast. Every other Monday, I talk about a different unsolved murder, disappearance, or unexplained death, in hopes that telling these stories will someday bring out the answers that these cases
1: are desperately seeking. You can listen to Still Unknown wherever you are listening to this podcast here. And who knows, you may even be able to reveal the final pieces to help solve a case. So subscribe now to Still Unknown to hear a new case every other Monday. And let's try to solve some mysteries together.